0: might have seen Thursday's sports section in the Times Dispatch. Down at the bottom of the front part of the sports page is an article entitled, Tech Cranks Up White Noise to Prepare for WVU. Now that's Virginia Tech football who was preparing to play West Virginia University Saturday, which was yesterday. And in the article, Coach Justin Fuente was interviewed about the team's preparation for the game to be against the Mountaineers. It was a road game, obviously, against their longtime rival, the Mountaineers. And like Lane Stadium in Blacksburg, the Mountaineers' stadium is one of the loudest in college football. The game was expected to be a sellout, and the question asked of Coach was this, quote, How do you prepare your team for such a loud environment? And Coach Fuente responded with a laugh and said, We have the worst sounding white noise you've ever heard in your life. He said that noise is played during every Thursday practice throughout the season, whether we are at home or on the road. We use it more frequently in a week like this one. And then the offensive line coach said this, I want it to be as loud as possible during practice so that when we get into the game, it's not something that bothers us. The team is ready for the game day situation because they practice for it. They simulate the stadium noise in their practices so they're ready on game day. Practice Practice, practice. I love baseball. My daughter and I love to watch baseball games. And I happened to be up late watching the Atlanta Braves and the San Francisco Giants baseball game the other evening. The Giants batter crushed the ball out into center field. The ball rolled all the way up close to the fence. As the runner rounded second, he was heading for third. As the runner rounded second, the Braves outfielder scooped up the ball and relayed it to his cutoff man who instinctively turned and threw it to the third baseman who tagged the runner out as he slid face first into third base. That sequence of events doesn't just happen in baseball. It's not something that you just do. They practice for that situation over and over again. Practice, practice, practice. And on Friday nights, if you enjoy going to the football games during the halftime performances, every person in the marching band has a part to play. Timing is essential. Your right foot hits the 40-yard line on the same note every time throughout the performance. Every part of the show is choreographed and is done completely by memory at show time or competition time without missing a beat. And that just doesn't happen, folks. They practice for it. Practice, practice, practice. Whether you are a pilot, a gymnast, a surgeon, a musician, or a teacher and other things you can think of, you practice for your game day from habits that prepare you for whatever situation you might face. Practice, practice, practice. And I believe this is exactly how Jesus taught his disciples. If we go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the sixth chapter, we see where Jesus had commissioned the disciples into ministry. And he called the twelve and sent them out two by two. He gave them authority over the evil spirits. He gave them instructions and even included what they were to do if they were rejected. To shake the dust off your feet and go on to the next town. Mark tells us that the disciples went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick with oil and healed them. The disciples returned to Jesus overjoyed about what they had experienced, about what they were able to do, and they reported it all to Jesus. Sadly, about this time, as they were sharing all of their ministry reports, word came that John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin and also close, dear friend in ministry, was executed at the direction of King Herod Antipas. Matthew's Gospel gives more detail than Mark about what happened. And when Jesus got that news, he withdrew by boat to a solitary place. Mark tells us that it was after all of that hard, long work, toiling work, that they withdrew by boat to a solitary place. But Matthew lets us know that there was also grief involved and that Jesus needed to get away. He says that as the disciples were with him, says Mark, in verse thirty-one, "Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest." So they went away, just the disciples and Jesus, to a solitary place. Well, it wasn't too long that all of the crowds who had been following Jesus saw the direction he was going with the disciples in the boat, and they went by land. That location. And that's where the feeding of the multitudes took place. And you know that story. But this struck me as I studied it. Jesus didn't ask for a vote on where they should go, he didn't say, I need to see a show of hands. Where, where would you all like to go? He simply says, Let us withdraw to a solitary place. And that tells me that Jesus knew exactly where that they would be going, that Jesus had been to that particular place many times before. He didn't ask for suggestions. He gathered them together and he led them to a place of familiarity where he could get away. It was a quiet place. The Greek translation also can be rendered wilderness, secluded place or desolate place. This was where Jesus could get away from all the crowds and all of the hustle and bustle to be alone with his Heavenly Father. In her book, Sacred Rhythms, Ruth Haley Barton writes about Jesus' state of mind as he processed processed the death of John the Baptist and also dealt with all of the reports and the busy work that, he had received from the disciples. He knew exactly what he had to do. And Barton states, But Jesus seems to have little time for their ministry reports. He's concerned about the bigger picture of how they will sustain their spiritual life rather than being distracted by outward successes. Without wasting any time at all, he invites them to experience solitude as a place of rest in God. But no sooner that Jesus and the disciples had gotten out of the boat, the crowd saw him and came around him, and the place was no longer solitary. And Jesus had compassion on the people. He was not going to ignore them. And he ministered to them and multiplied the five loaves and the two fishes and fed the multitudes. The Scripture says it was 5,000, but we know that that was only the count of the men there. They Include the count of the women and children. It was probably two to three times that many people, if you think about it. But even after this, the Scripture says in Mark 6, 45 and 46, that Jesus sent the disciples ahead of him, and he went up on a mountainside to pray. He still knew that he needed time for solitude. What's behind that mindset? What's behind his single-minded focus uh, uh, and, and intentionality around leading his disciples to a place of rest? I believe that Jesus knew that solitude and rest were critical to the sustainability of ministry. You can't continue to burn the candle at both ends and sustain that. Some of you know what I'm talking about. If you are in the medical profession right now, it is exhausting. If you are an educator and in our schools trying to make all of this work during COVID, it is exhausting. And I will say, if you ask any of our staff and the key leaders at our church, as we have led our congregation through COVID, it's been exhausting. And God gives us the uh, ability to do things in crisis, but crisis is not sustainable. We cannot function in crisis mode all of the time. We will dry up, and those around us will as well. It is vitally important for us to find rest in solitude. It's difficult, and I know some of you are wondering, Pastor Bob, how in the world can I find an extra 15 minutes? And I don't know what that looks like for you, but I pray that you you will be able to find it to rest in the Lord. Solitude is the very first spiritual practice that Ruth Haley Barton mentions in her book, Sacred Rhythms. I believe that is very intentional. Because without solitude, none of the other ones make sense. How can we pray effectively if we are first not in solitude with the Lord? How can we study Scripture if we haven't devoted some time to solitude? And this isn't a guilt trip to make us feel bad about the things that we are overlooking. I'm preaching to myself. I understand that we are all in this thing together. Solitude is vitally important, critically important for life and for sustainability in Christian ministry vocational ministry and lay ministry together. I want to suggest today that such solitude needs practice, practice, practice. When practice is a habit, solitude becomes what Charles Duhigg describes in his book, The Power of Habit, a keystone habit. Some of you might be familiar with his book. I encourage you to read it, The Power of Habit. He says a keystone habit is a pattern that has the power to start a chain reaction, changing other habits as it moves through an organization or through an individual. Some examples that he cites are exercise. And he says that just once a week, if someone starts exercising, even if it's chair aerobics, whatever that is, once a week affects other patterns. We start eating better. We become more productive in our work. If we're a smoker, we smoke less, and ultimately exercising and smoking don't work together, and people quit smoking. We are more patient with colleagues and family, and exercise and the habits that stem from that can even cause us to use credit cards less because we are less impulsive and less stressed and all of that. So one step toward exercising has a multitude of impact he also says the habit of families eating dinner together can change and transform families and develop other good habits i know that sometimes it's very difficult for that to happen in fact there are some families they're not together at dinner time because there might be a single parent in the home and They are working two and three jobs just to make ends meet, and grandparents are helping to raise children. I understand fully that not everyone has the opportunity to gather around the dinner table in the evening, and that's something that we as a church need to be mindful of and understanding about, especially when we're out shopping and doing things and someone's waiting or serving us. But for those of us who are able to do that, Duhigg says it helps to raise children with better homework skills. Their grades seem to be better. There's more emotional control and more self-confidence just from having that sacred family mealtime together. And then I added this, the the habit of attending a recovery group. If you are or know someone who has a, a challenge with drinking or perhaps Uh, narcotics or uh, other addictive substances, taking that first step into a recovery group like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous and others can, Gambling Anonymous, especially with the proliferation of sports gambling, sports book, have you any seen those commercials? So these recovery groups taking that first step can help change and transform our lives so that other good habits stem from what we've learned in recovery. So you might say, Pastor Bob, where, where do I start? How do I know to start? And I'd say we already know with the first step. The first step. And I believe that as Christians, our first step into life-changing spiritual patterns that affects other areas of our lives is a step into solitude Even if it's 5, 10, 15 minutes a day, maybe set the alarm a little earlier or change some other habit that we have in our routine to allow time with the Lord. At its core, solitude is making time for God. That's it. It's creating space in our lives for God. It's being with God. being with the one who loves you the most. Solitude opens the door for other practices such as prayer and meditation, study of scripture, rest, exercise, Sabbath, and so forth. But it all starts with solitude. And these spiritual practices that solitude invites can help us to be better listeners, Pray for the ones we love most and to become more and more like Jesus. And I'm convinced that when our attitudes, like Paul writes, become more like, when we become more like Jesus, then the, the body of the church becomes more like the body of Christ and the community around us becomes more reflective of the kingdom of God. It all begins when God's people are in, alone with the Lord. Barton writes, Solitary, Solitude is a place where only God will do. The psalmist writes, Be still and know that I am God. It's one of my favorite verses. Be still and know that I am God. The message version reads as follows, Step out of the traffic. Take a long, loving look at me, your high God. And the New American Standard Bible says, Cease striving and know that I am God. In Exodus 14, there's the story of the Israelites as they approach the Red Sea. And the, it, the, the Egyptians are coming behind them and they're afraid. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. The battle is the Lord's. Be still and know that I am God. So here are three practical steps toward experiencing solitude. I don't have them on the screen for you because they're so easy to remember, First, solitude is a place in time. So time, a place in time that we would find a time and set that apart for solitude with God. So it's a place in time. It's also a physical place. So a place in time, a physical place. Early in the mornings when I rise, I get a cup of coffee and I go into my study at home and I have a big box chair in there with an ottoman. I sit there and get settled and I have solitude with the Lord. And then I also have prayer time and scripture and journaling, but I enjoy those few moments when I can be alone with the Lord. And if I doze off, that's okay. Do you ever feel guilty when you take a nap? Some some of you. I hope not. We need them. Sometimes companies have restrooms, not restrooms like bathrooms, but rest rooms where you can actually go in and take a cat nap if you want to. If you have a baby or a little one, sometimes you nap while they nap. I had to learn this from experience when Isabella was a baby and Melanie had maternity leave and I came home and she would sometimes still be in her pajamas because of all that she had to do with Isabella that day, Isabella had uh, what's the uh, reflux, and and she it was um, Melanie had to stand with her all the time, and if she laid her down, she she would cry, and so sometimes when she Melanie finally got Isabella for a nap, and it, Melanie would take one too, and you never come home and say what have you done today, what. That doesn't work. Okay? After one time of that, you know. Right? It's okay to nap. Jesus rested. We need to rest too. Third thing so it's a place in time, a physical place, and it's a place inside ourselves. It's where God's Spirit and our Spirit dwell together in unity. A time, a place. And within Solitude attempts to interrupt the cycle of consumerism and performance-based spirituality that we as Baptists are so good at by turning off all the noise and the stimulation in our lives so that we can hear our loneliness and longings calling us into deeper relationship that only God matters. Now I want to close you with this thought from Barton's book. She says this. We are teetering on the brink of dangerous exhaustion, and we really cannot do anything else until we've gotten some rest. The other disciplines in her book and elsewhere are, she says, a wonderful smorgasbord of spiritual sustenance. But we really can't engage in any of this until solitude becomes a place of rest for us rather than another place for human striving and hard work our visioning journey over the course of this year where we're seeking god's vision for our congregation and our future isn't just a program that we're going through at all it and it will only be effective if we are first spending time alone with the lord as individuals and then As a body, we come, and as a body, we are able to discern the will of God together. I'm convinced of that. And I believe what Barton says in her book is absolutely true. Solitude is a place where only God will do. I pray that you'll take that first step this week. Maybe you'll take it today. And I have a a statement or a thought that might help and it'll be on the screen. I will do today what I can do so that tomorrow I will be able to do what I cannot do today. I will do today, meaning first step, I will do today what I can do so that tomorrow I will be able to do what I cannot do today.